Hardware to Save a Planet explores the technical innovations that are giving us hope in the fight against climate change. Each episode focuses on a specific climate challenge and explores an emerging physical technology solution with the person bringing it into reality. I'm your host, Dylan Garrett. Hello and welcome to another episode of Hardware to Save a Planet. I think we're all very lucky to have Arid Malik here today with us, co-founder of Glacier. We'll be talking about what happens in recycling facilities, how Glacier is using robotics to improve them, and how that can drive a circular economy. Just one quick stat that I think is helpful for us all to have in our heads for the episode, 50% of US recyclables go to the landfill today. So in addition to the pollution reduction, imagine if all of that could be turned into feedstock for manufacturing new products. That would then reduce greenhouse gas emissions from manufacturing. So this is a really impactful space to be focused on. I just started getting to know Arib, so I'll mostly let him introduce himself. But I do want to say that, Arib, I love looking at your resume because I think it sets a really great example for a lot of us. So if you look at Arib's resume, he was a software engineer at Facebook for five or six years. And then all of a sudden, he's the founder of robotics company disrupting the recycling industry. I think we could all use a bit more of the courage and sense of responsibility that I'm sure a move like that took. I'm excited to hear the story from the man himself. So Arib, thank you for joining us. Of course, I am really excited about what you are putting together with this podcast. And I'm excited to be on here with you. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for saying that. Before we get into Glacier, I'd like to hear a little more about your background and what inspired you down this climate tech path. I could 100% go back to my childhood and say when I was a kid, I I was the one who was like always turning the lights off in my house. And like, I was trying to be conscious of the environment because that's what I was taught at school. I think the the more pertinent piece of my story probably comes in my year four, year three at Facebook, where that was my first job out of college. And I had done a lot of learning, right? At that company, you learn a lot from like some of the best engineers and they have this great architecture and all of this stuff. But at the same time, it's kind of the whole time you're at a company like that. I know I'm not shaming Facebook in particular. I think a lot of these companies, you kind of find yourself working on these small little features that don't really feel like they're making that big of an impact in the world. And I'm sitting there, my nine to five, doing small features on Facebook. And then I go home and like, here's the news. And it's like, climate change. The skies in California are literally orange because of the fires. And like everything, it's, it's really in your face. And for me, it felt like a misplacement of myself, of, of the skills I had to be working on things like that. I could very clearly see. There is this big problem. We're all aware of it. It is climate change. And if you think about how much energy, how many people, how much money we are investing as a society into fighting climate change, it just doesn't seem like enough. And I felt like I was part of that problem. And that's kind of the big thing for me, right? It's You said sense of responsibility. I think that really encapsulates it. I do think that as a lot of people, hopefully listening to this podcast, that's could actually be making a really big impact on the climate space if they only took the jump to do it. And one of the problems, frankly, Dylan, is that there are not a lot of opportunities for people to do that. So if I'm sitting there as an engineer at Facebook, I'm looking, okay, I want to make a change on climate space. How do I do it? There's not a ton of spots out there. There's a lot of ways to get into ad tech. There's a lot of ways to get into crypto. There are not a lot of ways, or at least three years ago, there were not a lot of ways to get into climate tech. And that's changing, which is awesome. It's really cool to see being in the space, a lot of new companies popping up and a lot of investment dollars going towards uh, climate space. I'm really excited to be part of that journey. My decision making was, okay, I want to go work on climate. Let me figure out how to do it. 
And essentially, I looked across the whole climate space, right? I was thinking, here I am, a software engineer. Here are a, a dozen different problems, tons of online resources to say where we as society need to make the appropriate impact in our fight against climate change. And really the matching game for me was, what can I do that matches up well with something that creates real impact? And I was looking across a ton of different spaces from energy generation to solar to delivery, all these spots, always looking for like the perfect opportunity. Then I stumbled upon this idea in recycling, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bunch, but that really has immediate climate impact and was actually an application in some sense of my skill set. So I was really excited to jump in and, and get to work on something that I felt really mattered. I am excited to talk about recycling. Were there any close seconds that you considered? There were some cool investigations I did. The second place for me was the smart grid. So the concept of how does energy from a coal plant or a solar field or a hydro dam, how does that get to your house? And there is, I think for me, I was really attracted to these like, like old legacy industries with the thinking that there was probably a really good opportunity to take technology that I'd seen in use at the Silicon Valley companies and start giving it to these industries that like, don't get that kind of love and actually start making changes. So I did a lot of research into the smart grid. And it turns out there is a lot of opportunity to be had in that space. There's a lot, like recycling, there's a ton behind the scenes. Every time you flip on the light switch, there's a lot happening behind the scenes and there's a lot of room for technology to drastically improve things there. Ultimately, I chose not to go with it because the business model for the ideas that I had thought of didn't really make as much sense or weren't as guaranteed as the business model I found in recycling. And I know it sounds like you looked for jobs as well, a company that could hire you. If you had found a recycling company that was hiring your skill set, would that have been the path or were you also excited to start a company? I was, I'll be honest, I was secretly excited to start a company. <laughs> I think that was definitely part of it, but the, I think the bigger piece was it's really about maximizing my impact. And there were definitely a lot of companies doing cool things inside the climate space. But if you look at the entire climate space and the number of problems we had, there are not enough companies in the space. And so just in that moment, right, I can create more impact by spawning a new company in some un under-invested space than I could by joining something that pre-exists. Yeah, I think that's really true. One of the things I've learned talking to everyone for this podcast is just how massive the opportunity is, how many sort of untapped use cases there are and, and challenges and opportunities. So that makes sense. And your co-founder, Rebecca, who, how did you get teamed up with her? Yeah. So we actually, we got connected by a friend of a friend. I had been kind of exploring this space and thinking about recycling and waste. She had been looking to get involved with an early stage company and was also deeply passionate about food waste. And this friend of friend was like, hey, you guys should talk to each other. You guys be talking my ear off about waste and whatever. You should probably just chat. Rebecca actually, she loved to share that she never intended to start a company because that wasn't fitting with her risk profile. But then when I kind of showed her what I had discovered inside the recycling space and the idea I had. She found it so captivating and such an obvious business win that she decided to take that leap. And so we met about three years ago now, is March of 2019. And yeah, we've been a great duo since. I think we have really good complementary skill sets. I'm the Facebook engineer. She came from Bain Consulting. And so good backgrounds to match up to solve a really, really behind the scenes and kind of odd problem. So could you give us sort of a, a rundown? of how recycling works. Yep, absolutely. Me three years ago also thought that it was just magic, right? You put your recycling bin on the curb and the truck comes and then it is recycled, right? And as you mentioned at the beginning, a lot of the stuff that we put into the recycling bin does not even end up recycled. And then there's this question like, why not? 
So the story behind the scenes is this truck comes and takes your recycling bin, dumps it, dumps it into the back of its hauling units. This is called the hauler. The haulers are across the country and their job is essentially to take waste from the city and from the county and take it to a specific point. And that point typically for your recycling is what's known as a materials recovery facility or a MRF. This MRF, oftentimes I'll refer to them as recycling facilities. Their job is to sort. They get everything we put into their recycling bin, right? And we're oftentimes trying our best, but we oftentimes make mistakes. And oftentimes people are just using it as a trash can. So a lot of stuff shows up at the MRF. Their job is number one, to pick out everything that shouldn't have been put in there, whether by mistake or just because it was, it was negligence. And then number two is to sort everything apart. Their end product that they're trying to create is essentially think of it as a big old mountain of just one type of recyclable, right? So a big mountain of cardboard, big mountain of aluminum cans, big mountain of plastic bottles. And what they do with that is they take that mountain, they compress it down to a cube, they wrap it in some wire. And in theory, what you have is a big meter by meter by meter cube of cardboard, right? And you take that cardboard cube and you send it off to what's known as a reclaimer. In the case of cardboard, it goes to a paper mill who takes in that product, shreds it down, cleans it up, and then reprocesses it into something new. That is, in very short terms, the recycling chain or like the circular economy of how things work. The cool thing about this is that at the very end of that chain, right? So if someone takes the cardboard or takes the aluminum cans, shreds them down, turns them into raw aluminum, for instance, and then sells that to a manufacturer, right? The manufacturer, when they make a new can, has a cool choice on their hands. They can either use this recycled aluminum stock or they can use what we call virgin stock. And the part where this actually starts to get really climate important is when that manufacturer chooses the recycled aluminum stock, it takes 97% less energy to produce a can than if they had used the virgin stock. And this is true for aluminum. It's The numbers are different across the board, but for each commodity, plastics and paper, you save energy by using the old stuff. And obviously you also prevent mining and deforestation and drilling for oil and all of that sort of stuff. That is the true full circle where we exist is in that second piece, that MRF, whose job it is to sort. And this is, I think, crucially one of the hardest and most important jobs inside the recycling industry, because the challenge of taking in a truckload of stuff that people just threw stuff into and creating something that is just a cube of aluminum cans or cardboard that is a hard process. And it's actually very difficult to do. Machines exist. People are in those facilities. This is where we play and we see a lot of opportunity because if you can create those cubes of material at the end that are A, higher quality. So within that cube of cardboard, right? How much of it is other stuff that got in there? We want to get that number down to zero. So higher quality means higher quality end product. So A, can we produce higher quality stuff? And B, can we do it more cheaply so that we can sell it for more cheaply so that that manufacturer is more incentivized to use their recycled stock. So we focus in on that sorting problem. That's where we exist. So within the sorting challenge, right, there are a couple of ways that sorting happens today. If you go to kind of the most old school MRF out there, what you'll see is they basically dump all the stuff on the floor and they take it up in a bulldozer and they dump it onto a conveyor belt. And that conveyor belt runs past a bunch of people whose job it is to pick out everything that's recyclable, right? So someone's standing next to a bin and in that bingo is all plastic bottles. And they pick out the bottles and toss them in. As you get to more advanced and well-funded facilities, you start to see equipment that helps speed this process up. Most common of which uh, are things that I consider high quantity, low quality machines. They do a good job sorting a lot of stuff, but they produce kind of wishy-washy quality at the end. 
A really good example of this is what's known as a disk screen. A disk screen basically is a spinning series of disks that pop up items that are of low density and high density items fall through the cracks. So what you get here is you get a machine that can effectively sort cardboard and large paper apart from bottles and cans and other small materials. However, you can imagine what that might look like. You get a lot of stuff that comes up the top that is not just paper and a lot of stuff that goes through the cracks that is small bits of paper. And so that's what I mean by high quantity, low quality. And the other thing you're going to see inside facilities are people whose job it is to deal with that low quality output of, of these machines. And so if you imagine that there's a lot of people involved, and if you imagine the job of working inside one of these recycling facilities, it might not surprise you, Dylan, to hear that it's really hard to hire for that role. There are a lot of labor shortages in this industry, not just COVID specific, but COVID certainly did not help. So much so that we've talked to a couple of facilities who have up to 30 positions for people to do sorting, and on their best days, they see 10 to 15. So there's a lot of opportunity to increase the sorting force inside these facilities, and that is where we come in. What Glacier produces is robots, and we use AI, computer vision, to look at a conveyor belt and identify everything that is coming on that belt. We pass that information over to a robotic sorting station that can then segregate the incoming conveyor belt stream into whatever it needs to be segregated into. So if they're, if we're imagining that first person I mentioned, standing on a belt, picking bottles out, we can put a robot over that chute, we can put a camera in front of it, and we can say, okay, you're looking for all of the plastic bottles. The robot will see each one pick it up and drop it into the chute where all of the plastic bottles go. And what you get there is you get a much lower cost, much more robust solution to your sorting challenges as a Murph that allows you to output the same or higher quality at a much lower cost. Awesome. And just to understand these Murphs a little bit more, are these separate facilities from where the trash bin, the, the actual landfill trash goes? Yeah, in most cases it is. In most cases, the landfill trash just gets dumped into a place called a transfer station. A transfer station is just a ground where all of the small trucks can come, dump all their stuff, and then they'll push it into a big truck and the big truck will drive way off into the distance and dump it into a landfill. That's where most of your black bin landfill goes. There are a couple of MRFs. They have a great name. They're called Dirty MRFs. Their jobs are actually to sort through that black material and pick out the recyclables. I know. I love the name too. Okay. That was one reason I asked is if a recyclable gets into your trash bin, is there ever a chance of it, of it making it back out? It sounds like only for only if they're at a dirty MRF. Only exactly. Only that. And one of the reasons dirty MRFs don't really exist is because it's really hard to create high quality output from a dirty MRF, right? If you're imagining going through everybody's trash, as you mentioned, right? 50% of our materials, our recyclables end up in those landfill bins. So there's a lot of value to be had. But it's really hard to sort through all of this other stuff and pick out the stuff that's important. It's also way smellier than a regular MRF, as you might imagine. And so, yeah, this is exactly the type of thing we want to move towards. Right? Can we build out technology and can we drive the economics of these facilities in such a way that dirty MRFs are really profitable, right? If we didn't make that the case, then businesses would just be popping up everywhere to actually collect what youth are trying to throw away into the landfill and pick out their recyclables for you. And maybe that's a helpful clarification. That 50% that's going to landfills is is a lot of that because consumers are putting recyclables in, in their trash bins, or is it because of sorting issues at the MRFs? Yeah. Unfortunately, it, the, this is another interesting question is that there's not a good clean answer to that, Dylan. Hmm. And one of the reasons for that is there's not a good way to track what happens to stuff, right? If you imagine the Gatorade bottle you bought from the store, whatever bin you throw it into, that is the typically the last time anyone's going to see it, except for maybe a sorter at a MRF, right? And so if you imagine tracking this stuff, there's not a really good way to do the tracking. There's a lot of estimates, but there's not a clear answer for this goes. And this is actually one of the 
other spaces that we're really excited about in the spaces? Can you provide more visibility and answer questions like that more clearly? Is how much of this stuff in the city of San Francisco, how much of my plastic water bottle consumption ended up in the landfill versus my recycling bin? Something that is certainly important to distinguish. Another nuance there is that if it goes to the MRF, it oftentimes still ends up going to the landfill because the sorting is so hard, right? So you might have a bottle successfully go into the bin, successfully go through the MRF, and then the MRF by its systems will say, hey, that's trash, send it out with the rest of the trash, and then it's off the landfill anyways. So lots of challenges that make that question kind of hard to answer. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of potential value in landfill, the landfill waste stream that could be reclaimed if there was an economical way to do it. Yeah. At the end of the day, a lot of this stuff is leaking into our landfills and our environment. And if you as a society were so incentivized to collect every single bottle because it was worth that much, you would do it. And we want to see the society move towards that direction. Awesome. So that's a really good overview of the recycling process and your solution. We'll put some link into the show notes of a great video you have of of your system so people can kind of visualize this stuff. What stage in evolution are you now? So how many robots have you built? Are you selling them to MRFs? What does that look like? Yeah. So we have a handful of commercially deployed robots across the state of California right now. We're in the stages of business in terms of startup, kind of in between prototype and commercialized, right? So we have these machines that are very functional, our customers are happy with, but there are gaps we know we need to close. There are performance marks we know we need to hit and features we know we need to add. So we're in that phase right now. We're not far from a point where we're going to be able to look at our machine and say, okay, this thing is ready to go. And as such, we've already opened the conversations with a lot of facilities who hear about our technology. And like I said, again, like very interested in what we are building. And so that's kind of where we are in terms of our business timeline. It's hard to throw a, throw a number on things. But that's approximately where we are. We do have a couple of deployments inside real facilities right now. We have nanny cams that watch them. And my favorite activity to do on a Friday afternoon is just to open up the nanny cams and watch our robots do magic. Um, so we're at that stage. In terms of company size, we're about 15 people today based out of San Francisco. And we're uh, growing as fast as we can. But it's a tough technical challenge ahead of us for sure. And so these customers you're talking to, will you be selling capital equipment or an ongoing service or both? Yeah. So as is typical of a startup out of San Francisco, we're very keen to see what kind of recurring revenue we can produce out of this product. <laughs> and so the idea of robotics as a service was very early on in kind of like the first business plan Rebecca and I ever wrote. And we would love to move in that direction, but uh, kind of two things. Number one is these industry players, the facilities we're selling to, they're not particularly keen on having a service that runs their sorting. For them in their mind, right? Like, Sorting is so key to their operations that if some business uh, had a service-based contract with them and decided to up their rate by 20, 30%, well, then they would be straight up out of a job, right? And so they want to avoid that. So they're much more of the mentality of, hey, let's just buy these things CapEx, which actually works out quite well for a company like ours, because when you sell a robot like ours on CapEx, you get really healthy margins, which actually helps accelerate what you can do as a business. So I'm not upset about it. It's something that we are going to explore as time goes on. But for now, it's yeah, it's a CapEx game. And one of the main selling points when your customers are considering this purchase, it's probably a big investment. What's really tipping the scales in your favor? We try to keep it to, the, to not be a big investment. Our whole objective is to make it a quite small investment that helps okay. you, uh, really change your finances. I guess I skipped over this bit, but when we set out to design our robots and I was having all these conversations with these facilities, one of the things we heard about is like cost of equipment. Cost of equipment is too high. It's too high. I want it to be cheaper to try out this new stuff. 
And so we designed a robot from scratch specific to recycling facilities. And this is different from typical robotic techniques, which is take an existing robotic system and just like port it into some new industry. Uh, what we heard kind of indicated us that if we build a robot from scratch, we can drive the cost down, we can drive the simplicity down, drive the maintenance fees down, um, and give them a something they really want. So all that to say, we try to keep it a very low investment from the facility, but to your question of what is the, what's the tipping point, it's really about ROI. These facilities are very mathematical in their approach. And the question is, can I get a robot that gives me this much sorting power and will it pay back itself in two years or less is kind of like the golden number. We're well under two years, which is great for us and great for our customers as well. And so that's something that it doesn't take a lot of convincing for these MRF managers to see what we have to offer. Be like, yeah, that makes sense. That's much better than anything else out there right now. So fortunately, it's a pretty easy selling game for us. Yeah. And thanks for bringing up the cost. I remember, I think I saw on your website, you list your 60% the cost of other robots of kind of similar solutions. So that's a pretty big drop. And two years is a, I mean, even two years is a really good payback period, it feels like. Two years um, is a great pay- payback period for this industry. And we're, we're proud to be well underneath that. And again, it comes down to this custom design robot that they really drove things down in that direction. That's awesome. And that payback comes in terms of reduced labor costs, what higher throughput, higher is what about the quality of the output, lower contamination rates? Is that a thing? In theory, it would be. The big driver, like the easy driver to grab onto is reduced labor costs. The other way to think about it, again, is if you are just operating under the labor you need, then you're actually increasing your, I guess, like labor power to match what you need, right? So again, these facilities have 30 people they need. They only have 10 of them. What do you do with the other 20 slots? This is a really easy solution for that. But yeah, reduced labor costs is the big obvious one. Um, In terms of increasing quality, that is there as well, but we have less data to prove that actually drives economics because there's a lot of kind of occlusion in how the output of the MRF, uh, the pricing of that correlates with the quality. It's very contractual. It's very kind of, hey, like you're my buddy. I've been doing business with you for 15 years. I have more stuff. I promise you it's 5% contaminated. This is the price I'm charging. And so there's not a lot of granularity in that space. It's something that, again, I mentioned the kind of missing data piece in the space and something we want to get to. But for now, the obvious buy is is the labor cost. That's a good point. Let's talk about the demand side for this a little bit or the demand for these these bales or the output. I understand that China had been our biggest reclaimer for the U.S., but they've kind of raised the bar in terms of quality and contamination rates that they'll take. And now they're no longer buying from MRFs. How has that impacted the industry or what does that mean for your customers? Yeah. So China enacted this policy called National Sword back in 2017, 2018. And essentially it said, you can sell bales of recyclables to us, but they have to be above this quality bar. And no facility in the country or the world was really able to hit that. I won't say no, a couple of people were able to do it, but it's very, very slim that you can actually hit those numbers. And so what happened is the market domestically took a big dip. If you look at the prices of recycled commodities, Back in 2018, you saw it go into a nice dip. However, things are recovered. If you actually look at where we are today, we're higher than what we were in 2017-18. And the reason for this is that a lot of that demand has opened up either in other countries or I think more importantly and more promisingly is domestically. One of the cool things that I like to point out to people is the Chinese government implemented a national store, but there are businesses who are relying on that input that all of a sudden lost a big source of their supply. And so what you've actually seen in the last couple of years inside the U.S. is those very same Chinese companies opening up the reclaiming plants inside the U.S. so that they can buy domestically and then ship like the chip down plastic or the shredded down cardboard 
back to China and they still get it and can make it, they can make their phones and whatever else they need. So the markets find a way to make things work. And we have actually rebounded from that 2018 dip. Oh, interesting. So they're still driving that demand just indirectly. Just indirectly. Yeah. I will say that there's other players coming into the space as well to help right. fill the gap because you had all this stuff that is valuable that didn't have a buyer. So of course, buyers emerge. And how much you hear a lot about how consumers are demanding more sustainably minded companies and products. How much does that influence the demand side of this? Yeah, quite a bit. We've seen this happen in two primary ways. Number one is with legislation. And so California is a leader in this and that they have a new Senate, California Senate bill that mandates that if you're producing and selling bottles inside California, that they must be at least, I think, 25% post-consumer recycled content, which means that I'm making a bottle and use at least 25% of my feedstock needs to be recycled and the other 75 can be virgin, but I'm now required to keep that 25% bar. And so you're seeing legislation push the demand for a cycled stock up. And that's obviously a result of people wanting it. And you're also seeing on the manufacturer side where a lot of people are looking at Coke and Nestle and whoever else and saying, you guys are a big source of pollution. I'm looking at the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and I'm seeing a lot of your stuff out there. And so there's a lot of pressure from consumers on manufacturers to push their ESG efforts forwards as well. And so we're actually getting, we've had conversations with plastic bottle manufacturers and their desires to be able to track and improve the collection of what they produce. And so you're actually seeing the will of the people actually enact in, in two ways right now, which is pretty great to see. And we definitely think that that is exactly the kind of push that we need to get this industry to where it needs to go. So let's get into the tech a little bit more. If I think about your robots, is it fair to kind of think about you have sort of the eyes and the brains that are looking at what's coming down this conveyor belt and trying to classify it and figure out where to sort it to? And then you have the arms and hands that are actually manipulating those objects on the conveyor belt. That is exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we can kind of break it down like that. If So can you talk to us about how the eyes and the brains work? Sure. So the eyes and the brains, uh, in like deeply technical terms, we use an object detection computer vision model, which is essentially what's, I think the most applicable analogy for the non-technical folks in here is when you go onto Facebook and you upload an image, and then Facebook like draws little boxes around your friends' faces and says like, oh, is this Dylan? That's object detection. It looks at an image, figures out what's inside of it, and then classifies it. We do the same thing. It's just not people and faces. We do trash and water bottles, right? But we take a picture of some stuff on a belt and pass it through a neural net, which basically processes the image and identifies within that image where stuff is. And the way it does that is that we feed it a bunch of previous knowledge. So we take hundreds of thousands of images of trash on conveyor belts, right? So the same facilities, we install a camera, take a bunch of pictures, and then we go through and we manually tag those images. And we say, okay, in this image, that's a bottle, that's a can. In this image, that's cardboard, et cetera. Go through all that, you feed that to the model, it can then be trained on that. So if it's seen a thousand water bottles before, odds are if you showed in a thousand first, it'll be able to identify without ever seeing it before. So that's how the brains work. Well, before I dive in, would you like to explore that further? So you've actually created this huge database of, and is that because there wasn't a library existing? Did you, you had to go and create this from scratch? That's correct. Yeah. And it turns out there, it's quite easy to get data in this space because you can put a camera or two cameras inside these facilities and just turn them on. And over the course of a day, you got 50, 60,000 images just like that. So it's pretty easy to get big numbers in this space, which is nice. And then as a founder of a startup wearing many hats, were you the guy sitting and labeling, this is a bottle, this is 
I fortunately was not because that sounds really painful. That was probably the first big expenditure we made as a company was paying a tagging team to do that. But it went much faster and much more high quality than if I had done it myself. <laughs> so you're actually building this really rich data set and this capability of kind of classifying these objects. Are there other use cases for that? Other ways you could monetize that? I don't know. I'm thinking like, you could understand consumer purchasing behavior in different parts of the country, or you could help cities audit their recycling rates or something like that. You're nailing it, Dylan. You should just join our company. <laughs> Absolutely. There is, as I kind of mentioned this earlier, there is a, there's a lack of data in this industry. And so when you ask me right. how, much of my, how much of the bottles we consume end up in the black bin versus the blue bin, well, there's not really a good way to know that. But if you imagine an AI system that was so high quality, you could toss it in the back of a truck, for instance, and just watch everything as it cascades out of the bin and just count, okay, I saw like 16 water bottles in that black bin. All of a sudden, you have really valuable data. And if you want to think about how you monetize that, there are a lot of players that are interested in that data if it existed. Number one would be the recycling facility who wants to know, hey, truck, you just dumped 30 tons of stuff on my floor. It's supposed to be 30 tons of recycling. And that's what I'm going to pay you for. But I'm guessing it's probably 20 tons of recycling and 10 tons of garbage. But I don't really know, right? I have no way to determine if that's correct. So this is where AI and automated data collection come in. And that's value to the MRF. The people who buy from the MRFs, they want to know, look, you told me this bale of hardware is 5% contaminated. I'm trusting you. And if I wanted to count that, I literally have to break this bale open and go through and count every single thing. It's a huge pain. And so I would love to have a camera just automatically tell me, break down the bale, put it onto my processing system, and it just counts. I'm like, that was a bottle, that was a can. This is 8% contaminated. Then you can go talk to your MRF. Hey, you sold me something that was more contaminated than you told me you would, et cetera. And so we started to create accountability once you have more data. Um, and the third player, which is really interesting, is the municipality who wants, generally speaking, to increase their recycling rate and create systems that their, their citizens can be more responsible. But... If you don't know what your recycling rate is, you don't know which neighborhoods are doing a bad job of recycling, what are you to do about that? And so what we could do in theory, right, is like trucks run different routes every day. And if you could use that knowledge and map it to the contamination rate inside the truck or when the truck dumps, you can start saying, oh, like this neighborhood is actually the people who are causing the most damage to our recycling rates. Let's increase our education budgets for recycling inside that neighborhood. And that'll actually focus your money to actually create more impact. It's cool because it's a way your tech could have an even more scalable impact. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, yeah. the coolest thing about this industry is that as you get in here and look around, there's just a lot of opportunity for new tech to really improve how things are done and help these players out. Okay, so let's talk about the hands and the arms and the hands of the system. Yes. Maybe just quickly, is there any challenge in getting the brains and the hands to work together? I, these things are coming down the conveyor belt pretty quickly. I imagine you can't have too much latency. What does that look like? The answer is yes, there are challenges abound everywhere. <laughs> A couple of the challenges. Number one is what is on the belts, right? And if you have really sporadic items on the belt, like can, and then there's a big space around it. There's a bottle and there's a big space around it. That's quite easy for the robot. You can say, okay, here's a thing, go here and get it. But what the reality is, is like things are layered on top of stuff. Where there's a thing we call burden depth in the industry, which is how much stuff is there vertically on the belt. And when the burden depth is high, these robots struggle with it. And it's hard to communicate, oh, here is a can, because reality is the can is like, or I guess a big bottle, right? If it's only one quarter visible, that's kind of hard to attack from a robotics perspective. So that's definitely an issue. There are other issues that tuck away inside of here. 
One of the main ones is picking up an item, which is very, really difficult for a robot. People are quite good at it. We have these hands that are these marvelous feats of engineering that can basically pick up anything. Robots are working on that. But they will pick up everything between a big piece of cardboard and a crumbled up soda can and a bottle cap, all with one robotic end effector is pretty difficult. And being able to indicate from the eyes and brains to the robot, here's a thing, but I don't think you're going to be able to pick it up. Don't even bother is a pretty interesting challenge we're exploring. Is that how you've done it? What, there, you have one end effector that works regardless of the object type? This is a, for, for the time being, the answer is yes. And so if you look in the industry, you'll see suction cups abound because they are really good generalists at picking mm-hmm. up things, but they're not great at everything. And so the open question in our mind, and I think in the industry's mind, is like, what about the rest of the stuff? You can use a suction cup to get 80% of items picked. What about the other 20%, right? Because a suction cup's not going to pick up a bottle cap. It doesn't matter how good it is. So how do you deal with that sort of stuff? It's a very interesting technical challenge. And maybe just help me understand why you wouldn't have two different end effectors. I guess you're kind of doubling the cost of that portion of the robot. It's actually something we're exploring. One of the unique things about our robots is that it has the ability to have multiple end effectors because we actually have multiple arms at play Mm -hmm. inside the robot. And so we could, in fact, have one suction cup and then one magnetized cloth, for instance, and then you can assign them to different things and then improve the performance or at least the graspability of items in that way. It's something that we totally can do, but again, we're, we're only three years old and we're only 15 years old, so <laughs> maybe I'll use you guys to make that happen. <laughs> Sounds good. So today you use a suction cup and that handles most things. It handles yeah. most things just this time, yeah. And when we get to the corner yeah. case, we'll start thinking more creatively. Is there something you would change on the consumer side to make the rest of the chain work much better? Yeah, the answer is yes. Education is a big one. Traditionally, industry, that's kind of seen as the most valuable lever to pull right now. But I do think there's definitely a space for technology to come play a role here. For instance, in San Francisco, where I am based, the the haulers, the Murph that runs in San Francisco, would like to take a look at people who are putting recyclables into their landfill bins and other stuff into their recycling bins and know that happens so they can either educate or even find them for kind of doing that, right? And so Right now, as a consumer, you're not really disincentivized to do whatever you want. It's kind of an act of goodwill that you do the recycling properly. And that is not working because we get a lot of stuff that doesn't go where it should be. But here's another opportunity for technology to come in and play a role, right? Like, what if we could actually, like I said before, like watch stuff fall out of a bin at a truck and say, okay, this bin was really well contaminated. Give that person a gold star and you go to your neighbor and say, oh, this bin had like a lot of stuff that was not proper. I don't know what the right retribution is at that point. I'm not going to get into that. But once you have that knowledge, you can actually do something that you can actually help that person, that household be a better contributor to the circular economy at that point. And the missing gap there is really that analytics and that technology play. Cool. Very cool. So what do you think is a harder problem going from zero to one, that first robot you first built or scaling that to, I don't know, your hundreds of potential customers? You'll have to ask me this again in five years when I've done the scaling <laughs> bit. But right now, right now, I'm going to say it's a zero to one. This is a hardware company. And the saying goes, hardware is hard. Back when I was a software engineer at Facebook, it was really easy to go from zero to one. You just spend a couple of days programming a thing and then it, it's there. Getting a robot to work and then getting a robot to work inside an industrial cycling facility, that takes a lot of effort. And so I think the zero to one phase is quite difficult. And once you get to that one point, 
I'm hoping it's going to be smooth sailing. But again, check back in with me in three, three years. All right. I'll take you up on that. Speaking of the future, what do you hope Glacier will look like in 10 years? I may have alluded to this already, but I think a Glacier, we don't consider ourselves a robotics company. We consider ourselves a technology company that's going to find all of the highest leverage opportunities to positively impact the recycling industry and drive this industry towards a point such that no matter what you do, if you have a recyclable item, it will end up recycled. That's where we want to drive the industry to. And what I hope to see Glacier do in this journey is be a major part of that transformation, identifying and building the right technological solutions, then distributing them where they are needed to help really revolutionize this industry and get it to a point where it is really a robust thing that is underpinning our society and keeping our ecosystem alive. We haven't touched on it much, but that's really key to this kind of circular economy concept. Can you talk just a little bit about what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, look, I got into this company because I was looking for impact, right? I was looking for a place to build technology that drove the environments in a positive direction. The circular economy is kind of surprisingly a very big deal when it comes to our carbon emissions, our climate change fight, all of this sort of stuff. Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which does a lot of awesome research, they say that 45% of our emissions comes from our stuff, not our energy, but from our stuff. If you look at the circular economy, if we had a perfect circular economy, we'd actually drive down emissions by 20%. So there's a lot of impact to be had in the space and recycling is definitely a very important piece of creating a good, perfect circular economy. And that's why it matters. Awesome. How optimistic or pessimistic are you about the future of our planet and why? I am transforming from a pessimist into an optimist. (laughs) One of the neat things about being in this space is I'm a climate tech startup and I can look around at the investors we have and the other people in the space. And there are so many people who are working really hard to build other awesome climate tech. Everybody has aligned objectives here. And if you just look at the difference between the number of climate tech companies that were 10 years ago to today, it is astounding. And so seeing that really shows that we as a society, we've made up our minds on this, that we are pushing hard in this direction. It'll be a buzzer beater, right? To see if we did it fast enough, but it's really heartening to see that we all really care about. And honestly, it's podcasts like this that exist, right? Like clearly people are focusing on this stuff. Clearly people care And you can see it not only in people's minds and the talks, but actually in the dollars we're spending as a society, which is awesome to see. Who is one other person or company doing something to address climate change right now that is inspiring you? Man, there are a lot. You don't have to pick just one. I'm going to give you just one because you asked. You asked for just one. I'm going to give my friend a special shout out. There's a company called Heirloom Technologies. They make carbon capture. And the concept of carbon sequestration is also really important, right? The end goal there is we as society are going to continue producing CO2 emissions. But if we can create an input valve that matches our outputs, then it doesn't matter. right? We're not actually generating climate change anymore. And so what they're doing is they're working on the climate capture side of things. They use this really cool technology that I don't know nearly enough about, but essentially using some sort of rock. I'm going to say limestone, but you should go interview Heirloom and figure this out. And they basically blow air through it, heat it up and draw CO2 back into rocks they can just toss into the earth and never be seen from again. So I think what they're doing is really cool. And I really hope they do well. And I really hope their competitors do well too. Awesome. We did interview Heirloom and we haven't launched the episode yet, but well, we may by the time this one airs. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for giving them a shout out. What advice do you have for someone who's not working in climate tech today, 
someone like you just a few years ago who wants to do something to help? Do it. Come work in climate tech. Easy, <laughs> easy answer there, Dylan. <laughs> like I said, three years ago, five years ago, there were fewer opportunities to do this. But nowadays, it is becoming quite easy to take your skill set, or really regardless of what your skill set is, and find a company that needs someone like you to better their company, better their technology, better their processes, and drive some solution in climate tech forwards. Like I said at the beginning, if you look at where we are invested as a society, it's trending in the right direction, but there are still a lot of companies out there that are doing other stuff. And I really think that if you take the amount of energy we think we should be spending on climate tech, and you look at the amount of energy we as society are, it's there's a mismatch there. And so I'm always trying to get people to leave their jobs at I won't point out Facebook, but you know, companies like Facebook and, and get them to come join climate tech and the fight against climate change. All right. Awesome. That's a good call to action for everyone and a, a good note to end on, I think. Are we very happy to have had this chance to sit down with you? I learned a lot today and I'm really excited about your future with Glacier. So thank you. Yeah, Dylan, it was a pleasure being on and, and, and sharing our story. I'm uh, excited about what you guys are producing and getting the word out about cool companies working on, uh, working on climate tech. Hardware to Save a Planet is brought to you by Synapse. To find out more about us and how we develop hardware solutions for the world's most ambitious companies, head to synapse.com. And then make sure to search for Hardware to Save a Planet in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere you like to listen. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Synapse, thanks for listening. <laughs>